Hi, everyone, and welcome to this special Ash Wednesday episode of Bible Worm. As you listen, you may notice that the audio is not as crisp as usual due to a mic failure during recording. Our apologies. We'll be back to our usual sound next week. Bible Worm, Bible Worm, reading the Bible with Bible Worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, professor of religious studies at Hendricks College and theologian in residence of Canvas Community in Little Rock. And I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, director of lifelong learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. On this special Ash Wednesday episode of Bible Worm, we're reading Matthew 18, 1 to 14 which the disciples ask Jesus, who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus not only refuses to answer the question, but insists that one must become like a little child in order to even enter the kingdom of heaven in the first place. It is only the empire that thinks in terms of status and greatness. The kingdom of heaven extends a welcome to all. In fact, Jesus tells us to cut off our hands or pluck out our eyes if they tempt us to think and act according to imperial logic, which distinguishes the great people from the small people even in acts of charity. Finally, Jesus tells the parable of the lost sheep, which teaches us not to pursue fairness or equity, but rather to make sure that each person has whatever they may need to live a full and abundant life. As Christians enter into the season of Lent, this text calls us to welcome those without status and seek abundant life for all. That sounds like an amazing way to spend 40 days. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Amy, how are things in your world? Hello. Things are okay in my world, although I just looked out the window and it really looks like hanging from the top of a tree is a sickle. A sickle, like, <laughs> like the Grim like Reaper? like a bad sign. Yeah. Uh-huh, oh, my like goodness. The Grim Reaper. But there's no Grim Reaper there. Just Maybe the Grim Reaper hung up his sickle. Yeah. That would be a good sign. That would be a great sign. Should you go check, <laughs> should you go check on that or we think it's okay? No, it's very high in the air. Oh. So I would not be able to check it very well. I am a short person. <laughs> Even if I were on the taller end of the human height span, it would be too high. Yeah. Well, okay. That so was a very strange answer that was, to your question. That was perhaps the strangest uh, answer that I've ever received <laughs> to the question, how are things in your world? Very <laughs> unexpected. Reaper might have dropped off his sickle. I know. It's right outside. I've also had kind of a strange day in that my five-year-old really wanted to play while we were getting ready for school today. She wanted to play the game Melanistic Jaguar. <laughs> what? Melanistic? Melanistic Jaguar. Yeah, right? I don't yeah. know that word. It's, uh, it's the technical term for a black panther. Melanistic Jaguar. <laughs> she has learned that a panther is not, oh, in fact, man. an animal, that they are... Uh, melanistic in the in North America, they're melanistic jaguars, and in Africa, they're melanistic leopards. And so, they're actually two different, totally different species, depending on what continent you're in. And there's no such thing as a panther. And so, every Is morning, melanistic now, like related to melatonin? No, that doesn't make. I sense. think it's related yes? to melanin. Yeah, so melanin. they're like they have they're dark. They have dark fur. Yeah, indicating the color of the animal. Yeah, mm-hmm. so instead of so it's a dark furred jaguar. Yeah. So we've, I've been playing melanistic jaguar. I just think the, the funny part to me is that my kid knows the term melanistic jaguar. That is, that is, um, that makes me feel some kind of way about my educational status <laughs> no, <laughs> as just, a yes. human. <laughs> she knows all sorts of things I don't know. It makes me laugh. So this is our, this is our special Ash Wednesday episode. We're reading Matthew 18, 1 to 14, the narrative lectionary. I think it's technically 18, one to nine, but you know, the 10 to 14 is the parable of the lost sheep. And I just felt like how sad would it be mm. to leave the lost sheep wandering out there in the wilderness and no one, no one to I'm look for I'm so her. glad you included it because I feel, well, we've read that before, but reading it specifically in light of what comes before it, I don't know. I feel like I right. thought new thoughts this year, which that's a happy occasion when you're old like me. <laughs> Thinking new thoughts. Yeah. It's true that we read uh, 
the parable of the lost sheep last, mm-hmm. no, two years ago now in the gospel of Luke, Matthew tells the parable slightly differently, actually, mm-hmm. and its location is sort of an interesting location relative to what comes before. So exciting things lie ahead of us. This episode is for Ash Wednesday, and as you may know, Ash Wednesday marks the beginning of a period in the Christian calendar called Lent, which is the 40 days leading up to Easter, not counting Sundays. And so for Christians, this is a period of self-reflection, repentance, and you know, trying to be reflective about our relationship with God and with our fellow human beings and making some decisions about how we might live better, I think, live more fully into God's vision for us mm-hmm. uh, in, the, in the future. This is not a typical Ash Wednesday text, but I think it's actually got a lot of really interesting resonance. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, I, I think it fits really well. Mm-hmm. Is there anything in particular about Ash Wednesday that you notice as an outside observer that's worth talking about? Not about this text in particular, but just about the practice of? Hmm, that's a good question. As you're talking about Lent as sort of a period of like reflection on your deeds in the world and your relationship with God and sort of leading into the the birth of something new. It made me think about the month that leads into the Jewish new year, which is different in many, all kinds of ways, <laughs> Right, but does have that, you know, that sort of similar, I guess, tone about it. But the starting of, I mean, Ash Wednesday is, is named for the practice of is it, is it named for the practice of putting ashes on your head or right, just a imposing. reminder that, yeah. Normally what happens on Ash Wednesday is a priest or a minister will impose ashes with oil on your forehead and say something like, remember you are dust and to dust you shall return. So it's a reflection mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. mortality, but also about repentance and, and uh, right, right, writing oneself with God. It's just very interesting because I I don't think of that period of time necessarily as tied and on the Jewish calendar as being tied to thoughts about mortality, except that the New Year is followed by Yom Kippur, where we definitely think about mortality. So I don't know. I I had not really thought of these two periods of time as having a whole lot in common, but this conversation is is making me wonder. Yeah, making me wonder. Yeah, it's always a, every year on Ash Wednesday, it's like, at what point in the day will Amy realize it's Ash Wednesday and people aren't just a little <laughs> schmutzy today? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It always throws me off, too. And typically, my Ash Wednesday services that I attend are in the evening. And so I go to an Ash Wednesday service, I have ashes in post, and then I just go straight home. Yeah. And so I don't wear them publicly normally. And so it's an interesting conversation in the Christian world about how public one should be with one's with one's ashes, but that is probably not for us to decide yeah. on, the Bible, on a worm-themed podcast. <laughs> <laughs> a worm-themed Maybe for uh, greater minds than ours can debate that question. But what we can do is talk about Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 to 14, which follows, uh, which falls on Ash Wednesday for us this year. We were mm-hmm. just in chapter 17, uh, ending in verse verse eight at the end of the mountain of transfiguration. Yeah. The transfiguration. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if we need to bridge that gap or if we want to make any connections there. We were just there a couple days ago. We were just there a couple days ago. I mean, the only thing that I maybe would note is that in the transfiguration scene and sort of the, the conversations that follow in the rest of the chapter, I mean, the disciples really want to know they want to be good followers they they understand some things, and then it's kind of, uh, I think, sometimes shocking to Jesus the, the ways in which they don't understand other right. things or they're unable to do other things. And so, and so in some ways, that I think that trickles into the conversation that we'll see in Chapter 18 also. But, yeah, there are, just, there are a couple different issues that come up in 17 that Jesus is like, seriously, guys? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, but – not for lack of trying. They just, um, they're not quite there yet. No, I think that's a, I think that's an important observation. And I mean, just to be fair to the disciples, like getting your head around what it means to live in the yes. kingdom of heaven. And you've just seen this transformation yes. of your leader and you've seen Moses and Elijah. Like there's a lot, 
there's a lot going on, and I you would have not no grasp frame it of reference. I know. I mean, I keep thinking of. I know we mentioned our old professor John Hayes often of blessed memory, but I keep thinking of this example he used early in graduate school when it was like when you have totally when you're trying to like learn something that's really totally new to you. It's like you have a bunch of clothing and nowhere to hang it up in a closet. Oh, yeah. So it's like you have individual pieces, but they're just all over the floor until you start to get some structures in place to say like, oh, I see how these things fit with each other. And I can like, I can sort of see all of it together. When it's a heap on the floor, you saw the piece before you dropped it, but then it just gets... Messed up. That is actually how I keep my clothes. We'll talk about that. <laughs> so the disciples have just a heap of clothes on the floor right now. They have and a heap of spiritual clothing on the floor. And whatever's on top is what they see. And yeah. And it seems to be in Matthew's gospel anyway that the the resurrection is the key point that you need to figure out how to arrange the closet. So until you can yeah. actually experience resurrected Jesus. And so Yeah. Yeah, it's totally a reasonable thing for these for these folks. One thing that does happen in that little section that I think is important is that Jesus, again, for the second time, talks about how being Messiah means that he's going to be crucified and suffer and then raised from the dead. And Mm -hmm. this, so Jesus is constantly talking about, I'm going to suffer and die at the hands of the authorities and then be resurrected. Mm -hmm. And that the disciples in particular can't seem to get their head around They don't even say anything about it when he says it in this chapter. It's just sort of like, we're just going to pretend that didn't happen. (laughs) They're distressed, but there's no, no, like, yeah, yeah, it's like, uh, it's awkward. It's just awkward. Super (laughs) awkward. All right. So then we'll pick up then uh, just a few verses after Jesus predicts his own uh, suffering and death in chapter 18, verse 1. I'm reading in the Common English Bible. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then he called a little child over to sit among the disciples and said, I assure you that if you don't turn your lives around and become like this little child, you will definitely not enter the kingdom of heaven. Those who humble themselves like this little child will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. So you've talked a little bit along the way about how the disciples in Matthew's gospel, you know, they they seem free to ask Jesus questions. Like they, they have approached Jesus from time to time and just asked him what's going on. Here we get the question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? I'm just so mm-hmm. curious what you think like is behind that question. Bobby, they say there are no dumb questions. <laughs> but this is, this is like, it just is such a wrong-headed question. Yeah. What do I think is behind the question? I think... They have not built the shelves in their closet yet. Like, I think they don't, they hear each individual teaching, but they are still trying to fit it into the framework that they had operational in their mind before. And they don't see any other way that the world can cohere without some kind of ranking. So let's say, fine. So we're, talk, we're not talking about the ranking of wealth on earth. But we're going to talk about the ranking in the kingdom of heaven. Like they, they can't, they can't let go of that sort of. They can't even see maybe that they have that structure and that there's another option besides that tr- that structure. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's another example of them like they're they're trying to, they're trying to be on Jesus's team here, but they, uh, there's a lot that they don't understand about what Jesus is saying. I think that's exactly right. And Jesus, you know, in a passage we read a couple of weeks ago, has said, take up your cross and follow me. That's what being in the kingdom of heaven means. Suffering and dying, that's what being uh, Messiah means. The meek will inherit the earth. That's what being a follower of God means. And mm-hmm. here we get them saying, who is the greatest? The one with the biggest cross. Yeah. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> And they're definitely working with an imperial logic here about a greater mm. and less and uh, status and who's going to be above the others and, and things like that. In other gospels, they say, which of us will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So at least then here they mm. just sort of like, <laughs> they leave open the possibility that, I mean, I think that's what they mean is they want Jesus to say, y'all are the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, I think. But that's not exactly, like, to their credit, they ask it somewhat differently than that. Yeah, yeah. 
So Jesus's response to their question is to call over a little child and invite him to sit or her to sit among them and to say, if you don't turn your lives around and become like this little child, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So here we have like Jesus using, you know, experiential pedagogy or something like actually bringing in, mm-hmm. not exactly a guest speaker, but it's a, 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 guest, a guest example. Yeah. yeah. Um, and this is not, I imagine at all what the disciples were expecting and probably not what a reader is expecting unless they've read this story before. But what, what do you take Jesus to be doing by bringing this little child over and saying, you, you got to be like this? You know, I should, I feel that I should confess that the first time I read this, I understood Jesus to be saying this child or people like this child are the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. But that's not what he's saying. He, it's almost like he is, he's answering, he's responding to their question, but he's not quite answering it. And so I guess what I understand him to be saying is that your question comes from having been raised in the in the waters in which you were raised. You know, like we've talked a lot about the fact that um, it, it it's all of us have been raised in the in the ways of the proverbial empire, and and so what what Jesus is saying is is this this child has not taken on that worldview yet. Oh yeah, simply by virtue of the fact that. They haven't had uh, time. Okay, I think you don't think that. Which I'm about <laughs> no, I really, I really like that reading a lot. And you know, when you say it, I'm like, oh yeah, maybe I do think that. But that's not the way I was going to put it together. So I, I really love that. How are you going to put it? together? But I want to linger with your thought for just a minute, though. So uh-huh. you're, what you're suggesting is that uh, over time we become shaped in the ways of the empire, but there is a period of time in which we have not yet been shaped, and that's we need to return yes. back to that time. We need to return to that. I really love that. Yeah, we need to leave it, live in our sort of pre-imperial way of viewing the world where we don't worry about hierarchies and we don't worry about greatness and we don't worry about... That's really nice. So I have... I, have, I, I will have further questions about what our... I don't know. Do we think that's really true to children? I, whatever. I, I have questions right. about about how Jesus seems to be portraying what children are like. But before we get to any of that, how, what was your sort of first, first understanding of what Jesus is trying to do? Well, I will confess to you that just the other day when I was uh, talking, just yesterday, when I was talking to my students about how to interpret biblical texts, what I said was read the text before you read the commentaries, because mm-hmm. the commentaries will determine what you can think about the text. Mm-hmm. And, but when I was preparing today, I just read the commentaries. That is not what you did. The text. Yeah. What all the commentaries say, at least the ones that I've been reading, say that, and I think this is actually a good, good interpretation too, uh, is that in the ancient world, children under the age of 12, say, didn't have any social status in the family. Like they were just sort of non-entities, uh, which is kind of an opposite mm-hmm. of the way many families, including my own family, work today. Like the children are kind of what we orient our lives around. Yeah. This was saying that the child here is being used as an example of one who has absolutely zero social standing in the world. And therefore, this would have been sort of offensive to the disciples to say, not only are you not going to be greatest, but you've got to be like this little child. That is somebody who has zero status in the world. Then you can sort of expand that out to say, well, what other sorts of people have zero status in the world? But the the, the example is you've got to give up all pretensions to status, to dignity, to like being uh, seen as a somebody in society and return to a stage in which you have no interest in that. Which comes in, kind of ends up in a similar place to where you started, but but from the other yeah. angle, the way you are viewed instead of the yeah. way you view. Yeah, I think that makes sense. No, I think my 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 study Bible also had that note, but I decided. To <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's why I, when you said your <laughs> thing, I, like I was the like, way you described that's it nice because it's getting at a similar point, but it sort of puts the onus on. I don't know. Maybe they get at two different sides of the same issue. 
But I think part of my challenge is exactly what you were, what you named that whatever, what they're talking about in terms of children in that, at that time and how they were viewed in society is really different than the role of children in modern American society, I guess I'll say. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny to me to think about, to say like children are humble. Like, are they? (laughs) Yeah. Do you work with, some children might be humble, like for sure. Children are humans and have the full range of human traits, but yeah. So I don't know if it's, like I spent some time when I was reading this thinking about what, what is it about children that Jesus is trying to get to and, and what is my experience with children in the world and would there be a, a different or better analogy for modern folks is there a different or better analogy for modern folks? I did not come up with an answer to that question. Yeah. I mean, where my head went was I went through the, you know, somebody who has no status in the world and then started to think like, okay, well, who doesn't have status in the world in which I live today? And so then I started to kind of fill in that, those gaps in the way, in the ways that I do. Yeah. I don't know that that's exactly, you know, because of my situation and where I have my faith community. I tend to think people who live on the street, like that's kind of my, my go-to. Yeah. Uh, you need to be somebody who is overlooked and dismissed by just about everyone they see. And that's, that's what that community is like. But there is something about a child that is like innocent and not yet, you know, this child has not yet become responsible to the Torah. So they're like, they're not quite responsible for doing right and wrong. They haven't made those choices yet which is different when you start to think about adult people and their life situation. Like they yeah. do have some responsibility. Yeah. And so you, in my mind, whenever I move it someplace else, I, I learn some things, but I also lose part of the child. You also lose part of it. Yeah. No, that's such a good, that's a really, that's, that's the beauty of the, the, I don't know if metaphor is the right word here, but yeah, that it pulls in all kinds of different directions. Yeah. One of the things that I, there's an edge in what Jesus says. It's pretty subtle. You might have to be a Southerner to hear things like this. I'm not sure. (laughs) Like when when you grow up in the South, you know, you can hear what people really mean when they say things like, "Mm, well, think about that, which means like, no way is that happening. You know what I'm saying? But you hear like, oh, they're going to think about it. Like, (laughs) nope, nope. So so I'm a little finely tuned to subtleties of language uh, sometimes, but they say, Mm -hmm. who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? By which they seem to be, suggesting that they are already kind of in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus says, unless you turn your lives around like this little child, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so he sort of said, you're not there yet. And you're in danger of not actually getting there at all. If you can't make this step, like maybe it's not as subtle as I think, like Jesus creates a sort of outsider motif for them. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, I mentioned earlier that when I first read it, I read it as saying the child is the greatest in heaven, which it then sort of goes on to say, whoever becomes humble like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. But before it gets there, I think there's that really critical point that if you don't become like this child, you're not getting in at all. And then it's sort of like anyone who does is right. the greatest. So so it is sort of skewing the whole idea that there's some kind of yeah. ranking. Like it is... I'm asking you to do something hard. You haven't, you're, you're not, you're not a yeah. shoe in, but anyone who can do this will all yes. be the greatest. It's a very interesting way of answering the question, but shifting yeah. the question. I really like that. And coming back to what you were saying about, you know, being shaped by imperial lenses. And if we think about what Jesus is saying about the kingdom of heaven, as being in contrast to the kingdom of Rome, the empire of Rome, then if you're still thinking in terms of hierarchies, you have, you literally have not entered into the kingdom of heaven. And so just because you asked that question, I can tell you that you haven't done it yet. Yeah. And I like, I love what you're saying about whoever you have to humble yourself like this child to enter the kingdom of heaven, because the kingdom of heaven has a different logic about how things are organized. And then Everyone who does that is the greatest, which means that anyone who can make the transition is equally great. That's really, really beautiful. Yeah. 
Can I say one other thing that came to my mind thinking about children? Although I, it, this might be really like a modern lens on yeah. children that's not so appropriate. So, so I so there's that. I mean, look, I I wouldn't call children today humble on the whole, but I would say they can be more. And I mean that even in terms of anava, like children aren't necessarily aware right. of how much space they're taking up. They'll take as much space <laughs> yes, as you they give will. them. Some children, yeah. some children, you know, like they're. And that's precisely a muscle we're trying to help them develop, you know, during their childhood. But I would say that children, especially young children, can be much more straightforward. They're not interested in, like, calculating any kind of power dynamics. They're not thinking about the future. They're, like, here in this present moment, they are advocating for uh, whatever they're advocating for, often the thing that they want, sometimes also the things that other people want. But they are, like, more present and not trying to control the future. They're just not future-oriented in a way that I feel like life has taught me to yeah. be. And it seems like that is something that that would work yeah. well in the kingdom, too. All of that, like, don't don't worry so much about the future. Just, yeah, focus focus on what's in front of you right That's now. That's so helpful, Amy. And as, you know, you're clearly echoing... Matthew 6 that we read a few weeks ago. And I'm so glad you remember what these things are. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I love that. And so here we come back to the trusting and the providence of the parents or here trusting in the providence of God that you're going to have enough and you don't have to worry about what comes next. And that is the way children are. And that is the way that we are in the kingdom of heaven. That, that connected a lot of things together for me that we've been talking about throughout this season. There's a little shift in verse five. So we've been talking about you need to become like a little child. And then we get Mm. whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Mm. Uh, There's a little move happening there. Yeah, there sure is. What do you, what do you think the move is? I had not given that verse the attention that it deserved in my it kind of slips by you, doesn't it? Yeah. It does. Yeah. There's a passage that's coming up in Matthew, which we're going to read in a few weeks, in Matthew 25, where Jesus says something kind of similar, where it's at the judgment day and Jesus is welcoming in people into the kingdom and he's sending other people off to the fire. And what he says to them is, uh, just as you did unto the least of these, so you did unto me. So this idea of the way we treat people who are not people of status is the way we treat Jesus is a recurrent theme in the gospel of Matthew. So here we've moved just a little bit from you need to be someone who doesn't crave status to you need to be someone who welcomes people who have no status because that's the way you get closer to me. I don't quite know what the connection is Maybe if you crave status, you would not be welcoming people who have no status because like, what can they, what can they do for you? Yeah. 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 It's, I, I, I'm actually glad to know that, that some of this is going to come up, you know, in a few chapters. We are. Yeah. I was just looking. It's uh, uh, a, I don't know, like a month from now. Okay, good. So I'll have, have some time, some time between now and then. But I'm just trying to wrap my head around, like, almost that, like, the imp, like, what does it mean, whoever? I don't know. I'm trying to really yeah. wrap my head around the idea that by welcoming someone of little status, you will, how you treat someone else is how you treat Jesus. Like, what is that? What does that really yeah. mean? I understand the yeah. words, <laughs> but I don't think I really understand the idea yet. It's interesting to me the way that sort of the, that Jesus is talking about greatness and the kingdom in a way that it's, it's like shape shifting sort of, it's like, people are asking like, what is my place in the kingdom in my rank in my lineup? And it's sort of like, well, first of all, to even get into the kingdom, you have to do this thing that you have not done. Second of all, everyone who gets into the kingdom has the same status. So like that takes off yet another sort of part of your thing. But then it, like it messes with it again. That's sort of like, Whoever, to, to welcome other such people, like now you're the right. welcomer. Like now you're not, 
the one trying to get into the kingdom or the one in the lineup. Now you're sort of, you're the greeter at yeah. the door. I don't know. It's like every, it's, it's, I don't know. Like everyone's playing all the parts. You, you don't have an assigned role. Like, again, it's very not, this is not like uh, the factory floor where everyone has a job and you do your job. Like you actually yeah. have all the jobs. And one of your jobs is to welcome Jesus, who I would have said like, no, Jesus is the one who's welcoming right. the people. Like it, it, it just turns the whole, um, I don't know. It, yeah, it's, we're building a totally new closet, <laughs> closet metaphor. Yeah, I love that, Amy. That's, that's so insightful. And, you know, Jesus has taken the question of who is the greatest. So it's a question about me and my status. And he, now he's turned it into, well, my job is to welcome other people. And so like, it's a totally different, we're in a totally different paradigm now, just in a couple of verses. And that I love your insight that the person now on the outside who needs welcome is in fact, Jesus. Whereas their questions seem to be like, who's like Jesus is clearly the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Right. Jesus was like the gatekeeper or the whatever. So now your job is Mm -hmm. to welcome. Mm -hmm. I also think I was going to say a little earlier when you were talking about like, who does this mean? And we'll continue talking about this as we go. But Matthew has been fairly clear that what matters is the way we treat one another and not necessarily what we say about what we believe, right? So there will be many who cry, Lord, Lord, who have no place in the kingdom of heaven. And then here, anyone who welcomes somebody is welcoming me. And so there's a, he's playing with the categories. He's going to do it again in Matthew 25 about this insider outsider. It's all about how we relate to other people and specifically how we relate to the people who don't have status in the world as it's constructed by the empire. That is the essence of the kingdom of heaven. And and here it's, I mean, this is a, in my mind, a wide open invitation. Anyone who can sort of step outside of the imperial structure, you are now living in the kingdom. Your job is to welcome others in too. Wide open. Yeah. It also connects with a liberation approach to theology for me in that people who don't naturally fit very well into the are not welcomed into the imperial structures in the first place, don't have so much baggage to shed in order to make this transition from the empire of Rome to the empire of heaven. And so these little children who have no status in the empire, other people who have no status in the empire, they're the ones who don't have the barriers. People who do have status in the empire or can accrue it if we want to, we're the ones who have have the hardest time making that transition. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Hi, everyone. I'm Marie Maynard O'Connell, pastor of Park Hill Presbyterian Church in North Little Rock, Arkansas, USA. And I am a Bible Worm supporter at the Bible Study Liturgy Worm level. I had finally decided that I was ready to work with the narrative lectionary when the pandemic hit. And then over that summer, I realized that several of the resources I was planning to use had shuttered. I was pretty upset, but I turned to Bible Worm and quickly realized that not only could I benefit from Bobby and Amy's fantastic exegesis and Bible study, but that I had found a community as well. I appreciate not only having colleagues from across the globe to think and study with, but also to be able to share the Bible study with a small class at my church. And the liturgy has literally been a lifesaver. It's the best use of my continuing education fund yet. I hope you'll consider becoming a Bible Worm supporter too. You can join for as little as $4 a month. Just go to patreon.com backslash Bible Worm podcast for details. And now back to this week's podcast. So Jesus takes this sort of image of the child and moves it on a little bit in verse six through nine. So I'll pick up there. As for whoever causes these little ones who believe in me to trip and fall into sin, it would be better for them to have a huge stone hung around their necks and be drowned in the bottom of the lake. How terrible it is for the world because of the things that cause people to trip and fall into sin. Such things have to happen. But how terrible is it for the person who causes those things to happen? If your hand or your foot causes you to fall into sin, chop it off and throw it away. 
It's better to enter into life crippled or lame than to be thrown into the eternal fire with two hands or two feet. If your eye causes you to fall into sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better to enter into life with one eye than to be cast into a burning hell with two eyes. Okay, that took a turn from welcoming little children yeah. to like chopping uh. off body parts so you don't burn in hell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah. we've moved from talking about children to talking about little ones. The word in Greek there is actually mikros, like micro people or something, or something like that. We're not using the word child anymore. <laughs> We're using like little people. Interesting. Yeah, it's being contrasted with megas, which was used back in verse 1. Uh, which talks about like the uh, mega people, mega people and micro people. Yeah. yeah. So whoever yeah. wants these micro okay. people who believe in me, um, who causes them to trip and fall into sin. I don't know quite what's happening here. We just came off the welcoming children into our midst. And now we're talking about causing people to trip and fall into sin. What, Linda, can you just help me with like what's happening right here? Well, here's, here's how I processed here I sort how I started to process this. At first, I started thinking about that what felt like, okay, so we, I've heard the stumbling block language before, and the Hebrew Bible is putting a stumbling block before the blind. Yes. And so I'm, I'm in some ways importing that with the idea that the the person we're talking about, that Mike, the yeah. Micros, yeah, or or the blind or whoever it is, has some kind of vulnerability that maybe not everybody has that is being taken advantage of with this stumbling block. So my first thought reading it was that like seeing a stumbling block and then saying, well, I'm going to (laughs) like, it sounds like this mafia scene. Like I'm going to take this hunk of cement and like sink you to the bottom of the ocean for doing that. (laughs) I was like, whoa. But, and so first I was like, that doesn't seem parallel, but but maybe what that's saying is it is parallel. Like if, if someone has vulnerabilities and you take advantage of them to cause them to be unable to get unable to, to get into the kingdom, then, then, you know, sort of the same should happen to you, whatever that looks like, you know? And if you're big and mighty, maybe that means you have to be encased in cement and sunk to the bottom of the ocean. But but I see those almost as like it's imagining these are these are parallel things. And so it's easy for people who have privilege or power in the world to sink the hopes and needs of people who are vulnerable. But that's but you have to recognize yes. that's what you're doing. Like you're not just doing some some little thing, you know, maybe intentionally or maybe because it's just convenient to you to not you know, help this person in some particular way. Maybe it's not done with intentional malice. Maybe it's, you know, I don't know. But but I don't think this text cares. I think this, I think it's saying that you are functionally sinking them to the bottom of the ocean. It just doesn't take as much. Wait, who's sinking to the bottom of the ocean? That the, the stumbling block is is functionally sinking the the vulnerable person, oh, like yeah, metaphorically, yeah. to the bottom of the ocean. Like it is just as bad what you are doing to them. Yeah. It just doesn't take as much because they don't come oh, with I'm as with much you. Yeah. whatever power in the world. And so it might just take a little thing yeah. to sink them. Oh, yeah. I really love that. But can you talk to me about where we start cutting off hands <laughs> and feet? Or do you want to say more about that? mafia scene. I just can't picture it as anything. Yeah, I know it does very much read that way. I've seen too many uh, movies. Putting on your concrete shoes. The word that's used there is uh, (laughs) my stone was a huge, my reading was a huge stone. This is actually a millstone, but it's a millstone of the kind that would have been pushed by an ox or a donkey. So it's like a big, like this is serious stone here. You can't fight this thing. I mean, Nobody would be exactly. strong enough to. So it doesn't matter how mega you are, this thing's gonna gonna take yeah. you down. Yeah. I think that's yeah. a really nice reading of this text. The Greek word there for causes to fall into sin is skandalizo, which is related to the word scandal. Oh, so wow. Okay, that's a whole other. Yeah, level. creates scandals or scandalizes them, um, causes them to fall mm. away. You know, and I, we were talking earlier about this idea that. 
the little ones or the children are ones who are sort of pre-consciousness of the imperial way. And so one way of interpreting Mm. this text is the stumbling block that you might put in front of them is imperial thinking, right? And you might lead them to think in terms of hierarchies, or you might lead them to ask who is the greatest, or you might threaten their humility and lead them away from the kingdom of heaven, even if what you... Right, or reward the behaviors that are that are yes. rewarded in the empire, yes. but that, that Jesus is saying yeah. we need to stop. And then that now immediately, like, whereas this for a while sounded to me like, ah, that's not something that I do. Now I'm thinking, right, I would I'm thinking about that. things like modes mm-hmm. of charity that try to help people, but they do it in the logic of the empire. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I come really close to that fairly often. And so suddenly like I'm paying attention now to this, to this thing about uh, mm-hmm. how is it that I do treat little people and people who don't have status in the world and how can I be somebody who welcomes people like that instead of somebody who applies imperial logic to them, which reinforces my greatness and their smallness. And when you start down that path, then that opens up all sorts of things to think about in terms of how we do ministry and how we think about people that are of lesser status and all sorts of things like that. Yeah. The bit about cutting off appendages (sighs) to me is a little bit related. The way that I'm thinking about it is those of us who learn to function in the imperial structure, like it is part of us. It's become deeply ingrained in us and our our hands do it. You know, the things that we try to grasp for ourselves, the things we try to own, the things we try to manipulate, our Mm. eyes do it like the way we view the world. And we're always at risk of sort of reverting to this imperial mindset. So that's bad enough. But if we do it in ways that cause other people who don't have that same status to also go down that path, this is the, this is the worst thing. So it would be better for us to get rid of all those things that cause us to continue to participate in the empire than it would be to be a whole person, but who is living outside the kingdom of heaven. That's how I put it together. I, there's, I'm sure there are other ways you can put it together. That's so, I'm really glad you brought in the, sort of the specificity of why hands and eyes. Because as I was reading that second part, I just sort of was like, I'm just going to treat that as a, these are examples of things that feel so, really are so essentially part of you that the thought of trying to exist without them, it, it seems impossible mm. or you wouldn't be yourself without them or it would be insane to let them right. go or, you know, and, and maybe all of that is true, but I think that the pointedness of saying the, the hands and the eyes, I think really does tie back to, to the, the things of the, of the mm-hmm. empire. I think that's right. And the, yeah. like the, those are really the ways that we interface with the world mostly is what we can see and what we can grasp. And so, if the ways in which you interface with the world are causing you, causing other people scandal, causing other people to struggle with what it means to be in the kingdom of heaven, then then they've got to go. Yeah. I had one other thought about this part, Bobby, that is not like, mm, it's not so tied in, it's not tied into empire at all. Probably good. But I'll just, but I'll just throw it, throw it in there. The other thought that came into my mind as I was reading this was, I am, by, I am by no means an expert in addiction recovery, mm. but from what little I know, mm. part of the process really can be developing an awareness of the things in the life, in your life it is, as it is currently constructed that are likely to trigger you and the really painful process of figuring out like which of those triggers can you honestly withstand and which of those can you not withstand and there is no option at the moment other than to cut it off so it might be like a relationship with a really beloved Mm -hmm. person or a group of people or it might be like a habit or a hobby that you've had your whole life but it has gotten tied in in your mind to this whatever addictive behavior that you're trying to get rid of um and 
and the text seems to be saying that like no matter how great that loss is and it can really absolutely be a real loss yes. it is absolutely positively definitely worth it and it is the only this is the only path into the yes. kingdom but it but it might hurt that's really helpful amy yeah it's really beautiful and you know when you talk about addictions when I was part of Mercy Church in Atlanta, they had a Bible study every morning, basically, that was called Recovery Bible Study. And the question was about addictions. Mm -hmm. And everybody in the room was thinking about their own addictions. Some people were thinking about they're addicted to alcohol or meth or whatever it is. Some of us were thinking, I'm addicted to wealth and status and comfort. Mm -hmm. And so if you take what you just said, and then instead of thinking like, well, I don't have addictions, the question is like, well, what mm-hmm. are my addictions? Then I think that puts yeah. it exactly right. And then also one step in addition to that is thinking about the ways you trigger other people. And that's, mm-hmm. those both are here. One is if you mm-hmm. fall into sin, you need to figure out how to get rid of that. And the other is the stumbling block. So if there are things that I do that trigger other people's addictions or other people's issues in ways that pull them out of, of wholeness of life, then I need to, to cut those off as well. Yeah. Yeah. I love how you tied those together. That's beautiful. There's this one line in here that I just want to pretend like it isn't there, but, <laughs> but here it is in ver- the middle of verse seven, such things have to happen, but how terrible it is for the person who causes these things to happen. What do you do with that? I don't know if this is a fair reading or not. But I think the the way that I am thinking about it right now is like there's there's bad things happen. Like bad things in the world happen. Probably if we want to think of this in terms of things that trigger us into lives that we're trying to move on from, you can't you can't realistically you probably can't avoid yeah. those things totally. But that's very different than manipulating the you know the fact that this person has a vulnerability or ignoring the fact that they have a vulnerability and pretending it's not there. I don't know. I, I guess the most positive read I have it is this, the most positive read I have of it is that it's an acknowledgement that the world is full of all kinds of stumbling right. blocks. And that just yeah. is. Do, how, how, do you, how do you read it? I think that? I read it similarly. I, I think that's right. And there's a there's a tendency that people have, I mean, I have it too, where we say, well, you know, if I don't take advantage of that person, somebody else is going to do it, you know, or like these things happen all the time. Uh, or you see it in politics yeah. a lot, like, well, if, yeah. you know, this terrible thing that my candidate is going to do, I'm going to, if he, if he or she doesn't do it, then somebody else is going to do it. So what does it matter? This is a little bit taking that excuse away from you to say, well, it's going to happen regardless of what I do. So now and when we're thinking about how we treat other people, it's, it doesn't matter that these things happen all the time. What matters is that you yeah. are not the one who does them. You need to be the one who welcomes, yeah. not the one who causes to trip. Even if you know someone else simply going to come along and start tripping people, it can't be you. Yeah. Yeah. I really like that. Mm-hmm. 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 Oh, and I think that leads in interesting ways into the next section that we haven't gotten to yet. Well, let's, but I like the <laughs> let's read it and see how it goes then. Yeah. So here we get the parable of the lost sheep in Matthew's version. We're moving just a bit outside the narrative lectionary at this point. So for whatever that matters, but I think this is a nice conclusion to this text. Be careful that you don't look down on one of these little ones. I say to you that their angels in heaven are always looking into the face of my father who is in heaven. What do you think? If someone had 100 sheep and one of them wandered off, wouldn't he leave the 99 on the hillsides and go and search for the one that wandered off? If he finds it, I assure you that he is happier about having that one sheep than about the 99 who didn't wander off. In the same way, my father who is in heaven doesn't want to lose one of these little ones. Okay, you were just talking about how what we were just talking about leads into this parable. So I'm just curious what you were thinking about that. Okay, so I, I will answer your question and then also say we'll probably have to back up because it sort of is like 
at the end of a whole line of thinking. (laughs) (laughs) But reading the parable of the lost sheep coming right from this part about the stumbling block and also, you know, in the mindset of thinking about what are the things that are tied, that feel so tied to my own life that lead me in the wrong direction that I need to be mindful of. It got, it, it just got me thinking about the sort of, I feel like, I don't know if equity as opposed to fairness is the right word. Like I started imagining these sheep and thinking like, why, what is it that caused the one to wander off? Not imagining that it's carelessness or something that you could sort of ascribe some kind of negative attribute to, but like, whatever, the sheep had ADHD, the sheep, whatever, like whatever, whatever it is. And, and so it is incumbent upon us, you know, so whatever, whatever stumbling block in the world was real for this proverbial sheep, it is incumbent upon us then to go back and try to help that sheep get back to the flock not because the one who wanders off is more important than the one who stays, because the one who wanders off needs something different than the one who stayed. And if you have the capacity to offer it, a blessing on your head. You need to, you need to yeah. do that. That's how they connected him. I really love that, Amy. And one of the things I like about Matthew's version of this parable, in Luke's gospel, as you might remember, Luke interprets this as about sin and repentance, And so the one who wanders off should Mm -hmm. repent and come back. Mm -hmm. Matthew's version is not exactly about that. It is, it's about the wholeness of the community. So this shepherd wants the one who wandered off to be restored to the whole. And so it's the, it's the hundred that matter. Like 99 is not enough. It's the hundred that matters. And so, you know, I, I tend to think like if any one of the sheep wandered off, that one would be the most important one for that moment, because it's, it's the wholeness of the community. So it's not that one sheep is more important yeah. than the others. It's just, right. if any one of us wandered off, we would there would be celebrating if we were brought back. We all need to be together. And I love where you were headed with that about, uh, so do what we can, all of us, everyone, to go and bring back to the fold those who have wandered off, whether they wandered off of their own accord whether somebody put a stumbling block in front of them and they, I don't know, tripped and rolled down a hill. <laughs> I'm losing my metaphor, but mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So we don't want to lose anyone from the community. And, I, and I'm thinking about all the ways in which communities I've been a part of lose people for silly reasons and silly arguments. Mm-hmm. And I mean, sometimes substantive reasons, mm-hmm. um, but what we should be trying to do is, is to keep the whole together. Yeah. Yeah, it's so easy to get into the mindset of the best we can do is serve the majority. And I think this text is pressing on that. Is that the best we can do? Mm. Is it? No, that's exactly right. And that word, uh, micro people, is the word that's used here uh, again. If Mm. one of these little ones, so what you were just saying, like this is an insignificant person in the eyes of the world, an insignificant sheep that has wandered Mm. off. Yeah. And so you could exactly think that sheep doesn't matter. What matters is we did the thing that takes care of the 99. The majority is fine. That one sheep that's not included. Oh, well, we do that all the time in our policies and all the other things. Yeah. So this is orient. And that connects back to Deuteronomy, right? Where the mm-hmm. emphasis is on the widow, the orphan, and the stranger, the ones. That's how you know if you've got the right community is if the ones who are the, the micro people in the eyes of the world are being fully included in the community. Mm-hmm. So your policies and your procedures and your actions should be trying to bring the, the least important person. And you can't see my air quotes. <laughs> you can. <laughs> the least I can. important yes. person yes. as the world would see it. That's the one who, who yeah. needs to. Yeah, the people that the, the system is not set up for them, nothing is going to automatically ensure their well-being in that, you know, I mean, I guess if, if the kingdom of God were in, in yeah. play, then it would. But the reality of the world is that it, it generally doesn't. Yeah. It's interesting to me that this parable is introduced with Jesus saying, be careful that you don't look down on one of these little ones, which is coming back to where we started about who is the greatest and who is the least. 
And so there's a warning against, in order to look down, right, you have to think someone is beneath you. And then this lovely image that I tripped over when I read it, because I hadn't really paid attention to it, (laughs) that the angels of the little ones in heaven are always looking into the face of my father who is in heaven. That is a fascinating image. How do you think about that? I actually wrote in my notes, I don't really understand verse 10 with the angels. So can you say first what you what you think? I'm just it is? curious what like do you have a mental image in your head of like what's happening there, even if it doesn't make any sense? I mean, I guess it seems to suggest to me a, a sort of system that I hadn't really thought of before or that I'm not familiar with, but that where individual people or maybe groups have angels that are like their angels, and then their angels have the attention or uh, like FaceTime (laughs) (laughs) with a certain amount of that with Uh God. And, and so if one imagines that system, then, then the angels that sort of are like the, the heavenly reflection of these people on earth are positioned so that they are, they're like, they got front row seats. Like they are continually able to see the face of God. Mm-hmm. So I've created like an upside down, big superstar concert scenario. With <laughs> I think that's exactly what's happening. I think that's exactly what's <laughs> happening. Yeah. I think we should start making like Lego yeah. scenes of some of these. Yeah, we used to have an idea of doing puppet Bible room puppet shows where we just act out the things with puppets. I like the. There is a Lego, what's that called? The Lego Bible or the brick? There the is a Lego Testament. Bible, yes. It's very yeah. interesting. Yes, I don't know if yes, this passage yes, is in there or not, but it would be worth taking a look. No, I think you're exactly right, Amy. Like, I don't know if uh, Matthew had FaceTime in mind when he was writing this, but I think that general image of these micro ones have guardian angels. We do get reference elsewhere in the biblical, in the New Testament to guardian angels. Was, uh, one of my commentaries referred me to Acts chapter 12, verse 15, where they refer to someone's guardian angel. And those angels are looking square in the face of God. And so how dare you think you can look down on somebody that God is willing to look dead in the eye? Like, to me, that's a really powerful image of uh, if God is willing to make eye contact with this person, or at least with their angel, then what on earth do you think you're superior to them for? It's a nice reminder both of the personal connection that God has even to the least important, just my air quotes again, even to the least important in the eyes of the empire and also the warning about how how dare we not make eye contact with people because we think they're beneath us. Yeah. I'm always reflecting on just the way I treat people who are on the street (laughs) because like, those are the people that, you know, even though that that's sort of one of my commitments in life, like one of the things that, that I do sometimes is I re- just refuse to make eye contact with people because I don't want to have the whole conversation, not at church, but just out in the world. I don't want to have the whole conversation about whether or not I have money and things like that. And so the way I avoid that is by not looking at people yeah. and what a dismissive thing that is. And if you think of them as God's looking them in the eye, looking their angel in the eye. So what on earth am I doing? Like, that's a really powerful reminder. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Amy. So we have opened up this text, I think in some interesting ways. My community is reading this on Ash Wednesday, but there is also a world out there uh, that is not uh, experiencing Ash Wednesday. And so I'm just curious when you read this text and you're thinking about Mm -hmm contemporary life in the context of Ash Wednesday or not, what comes to mind as most important for you? I think, I think I'm just, I'm really sort of drawn or stuck or still, still sitting with the idea of this lost sheep story sort of as a way, as a, a, as a way again, because the biblical text does this so many times to, to sort of lift up the idea that 
fairness, meaning equal treatment of every single creature, isn't really the goal or isn't Uh. the only goal. You know, we might use the word equity now, but as I read this story, like in the context in which it's in, I want to know why that sheep went astray. Like, what was it? What, (laughs) it seems funny talking about with a sheep, but what challenge did that sheep have that none of the other sheep had? And instead of saying, instead of like blaming the sheep for it, just acknowledging that like every person in the world or sheep or creature is like, we're dealt the cards we're dealt. And there's actually nothing fair about the cards we're dealt. And so it, we might talk about it in terms of like social capital or um, financial privilege or any kind of power society will give us. Or we might talk about it in terms of like the the ways that our bodies enable to do certain things or not other things or whatever. And, and we're dealt the cards that we're dealt. And what I see in this text is that it's it is the goal is that every person or creature is getting what they need in order to live the life they ought to live that supports their physical and spiritual well-being and growth and courage. And I think this is saying that like we should be in the business of getting as many creatures over that sort of imaginary finish line as possible. Maybe the finish line being living in the divine kingdom or, you know, on earth or, or on heaven or both of those things as Matthew might think about it. But I really am, I don't know, I'm really liking the idea of instead of saying we celebrate getting the sheep back because he was doing something wrong yes. and now he's coming back to the fold and not doing something wrong, saying like something happened for this sheep and the sheep needs something different than the yeah. other sheep. And and that's that's actually quite normal. That is part yes. of creation. That is, you know, the world we live in. And so we should unabashedly go after that sheep whenever we yes. can. And next time it might be a different sheep. We'll go after them too. I love that, Amy. I think you captured so much about the whole passage just in – thinking through that parable, which is why I think the parable is so important to include uh, in the reading. The parable just fits so nicely with the passage. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I am thinking along similar lines that, you know, you were talking about the kingdom of heaven on earth, the kingdom of heaven someplace else. And, you know, I think both of those things are important. Matthew thinks both of those things are important, but I little bit think I'm thinking back to the parable of the weeds that we read a couple times ago. Mm -hmm. Where seem, which seem to say you don't actually have control over the kingdom to come in the future, mm-hmm. but you do here in the present. Mm-hmm. And so if we, if we orient not toward the future kingdom of heaven, but the kingdom of heaven as it expresses itself in the here and now, then what you're saying results in this sort of ethic in which we are conducting ourselves according to the needs of the most likely to wander off, the, the one who's having the hardest time. Yeah. getting into the fold and staying there, like that's our orientation. And if we do anything that threatens that person's uh, inclusion in the community or their well-being, then we need to not take it out on them, but in this text, actually like right. take it out on ourselves, pluck out our eyes, cut off our hands. Yeah, we need to check ourselves. Mm-hmm. What I love about this text exactly along those lines as an Ash Wednesday text is in my experience, and this might just be me, Oftentimes, Ash Wednesday becomes like a personal reflection for me on like abstract personal qualities. And so I might read this text and say, well, the question is, who is the greatest? And, you know, Jesus's response is you need to be humble. And I am a prideful person. And therefore, I need to be more humble. And then that would sort of be the end of how I would think about that. And I would spend the next 40 days trying to be humble. This passage, when you read it on, really puts legs on what that means in the way that you just described. It's not just about an attitude of pride or humility. It's about the way we conduct ourselves in community to welcome people in, to welcome the children, the ones who have no status in the eyes of the empire, to create a space of welcome. And when they wander off, to do what must be done to bring them back in. And so this is not about personal, it's not only about personal reflection on Mm -hmm. my own personal attributes, but exactly on how those play out in community. 
and what am I doing in my community or what is my community doing in the larger community to make sure that we are not just focusing on ourselves and how great we are, Mm -hmm. but actually orienting ourselves to the full inclusion of people who are marginalized viewed as micro people by the rest of the world. If we could do that for 40 days, like I would love for us to do that all the time, right? But if we can focus on that for 40 days and say our Lent is going to be about being fully inclusive of the sheep who wandered off, that would be an amazing way to spend 40 days. And like what a gift it could be to be able to give up the mantle of being the arbiter of fairness or the – you know, I need to decide who deserves what. No, you yeah. don't. Like, that's actually really good news. You don't yeah. need to decide that. <laughs> Which is interesting. Yeah, because one of the things that you've said a couple of times, I wish I knew why that sheep wandered off. The parable withholds that information, mm-hmm. which I think is important mm-hmm. because our instinct is to be like, why did that sheep wander off? And then to make, like, the, the dangerous way that goes is to then make a judgment about why the sheep. Yeah. But if we don't know, and this message of the parable is still, you got to go get that sheep, then it means... We don't know that about that sheep. We don't need to know it about any other sheep. And so the reason for the wandering, I mean, the systemic reason, maybe we do need, like, what did we do to make that sheep wander? Maybe we do need to think about that. Right. We need to know that. We need to know what the sheep, (laughs) what the sheep needs. What makes the sheep stumble. Yeah. Yeah. But we don't need to make value judgments about the fact that the sheep wandered off. It doesn't matter what the sheep. Right. We don't have to know, we don't have to figure out what we think about that. We don't have to. Yeah, I mean it. Yeah, it does free. It gives us a lot of responsibility and also frees us from a lot of stuff. Amy, as always, I have really enjoyed talking about this text with you, and I feel like I understand not only this text but also I have a different way of thinking about Ash Wednesday now. Oh no, I can't wait to hear your report. <laughs> oh no, oh no, <laughs> Ash Wednesday report. I'm gonna have to tell you after Easter. And you're like, oh. <laughs> So next time, we're going to be back to our regular narrative lectionary in the very next verse, 8.15 to 35, and we will be talking about forgiveness. Which I think we talked about this Alrighty. text briefly earlier. We were like, we can't wait till we get back to that idea. Here oh, it comes. Good. All right. I look forward <laughs> All right. to it. See you next time. All right. See you next time. You Have a good week. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby, and our theme music is The World at Large by Dano Psalms. Thank you, thank you, thank you to all of our Patreon supporters for helping to make this podcast possible. Join us next time when we'll read Jesus' instructions on accountability and forgiveness in Matthew 18, 15-35. Until then, keep on digging.